0: Yeah,
1: you better. Hello, and welcome to the most recent edition of Should You Read Before You Die? In this episode, we will be uh, answering the question, should you read Homer's The Odyssey Before You Die? Uh, this episode, I am lucky to be joined by a real author, a real novelist, Emily Holloman. Emily is the author of Cleopatra's Shadows and the Drowning King, published by Little Brown and Company, the first of which was long listed for the HWA debut crown. She's currently taking a break from, here I try to pronounce this, P- Ptolemies. Ptolemies, uh, but
0: very, it's Ptolemaic, but Ptolemies,
1: which is very confusing. All right. At least, not pronouncing, at least I'm not pronouncing the P, which I've done in the past. She uh, worked on a speculative novel set in the not-so-distant future. Her nonfiction work has appeared in Elle, Lit Hub, Salon, and, and Bookpage, among other top publications. She's a native New Yorker and, and a determined urbanite. Uh, she's now living on a ranch only about an hour south of me in the Bay Area. Um, Emily, welcome. Thank you
0: so much. Thanks for that introduction. And sorry that I could not help myself with the Ptolemy pronunciation. I just, you know, sometimes I hear it and I just have to jump in like that. Yeah. So. Uh- <laughs> It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm excited to chat about the Odyssey. Uh,
1: just a quick personal note, like uh, a former guest, Alex Sarlin, um, for the podcast on The Sheltering Sky, Emily and I worked together at Newton. Um, we both answered LSAT questions all day long, and that we will not get into that in this podcast.
0: Who knew it would be such a rich place to find people who are lovers of
1: literature? I've actually had a thought of like doing a podcast twelve hours about the failure of a startup, like really getting into it. And you, oh know.
0: my god, I, okay, we can't actually go down this road right now. I, if you do that, I'd love to. I mean, I'm not an expert on Newton, but I'd love to, to jump
1: in on that front. Uh, yeah, me too. Like, I can't get into it anyway. Right, let's let's get let's dive into this. One. All right, so Emily, you are a you have two novels out, uh, both uh, you know take place in Ptolemaic uh, Egypt. How did you get into that and as your focus and um, what excites you about that period of of our history? Um,
0: Great question. So definitely uh, I've always been very interested in the ancient world ever since I was a a kid and sort of grew up on a lot of the Greek mythology um, and Egyptian mythology as well. I guess what fascinates me so much specifically about the Ptolemies is uh, that it's this window into the end of the Hellenistic period, which is the end of the period where um, the sort of descendants and not literal descendants, more figurative descendants of Alexander the Great were ruling most of the world, um, and when they are sort of displaced by the Romans. So when we see Ptolemaic Egypt, which is really sort of Cleopatra's Egypt, it's the end of this dynasty, and it's not just the end of the Hellen- of the Ptolemaic dynasty, it's the end of all of these other dynasties that were born of Alexander the Great's um, uh, conquests in the 4th four- in, in, in uh, century BC.
1: But yeah, it's uh, yeah. I know that, that area not so well. Um, I just have a question, then why, you know, I, I came to you about being on this on this podcast. Why did you choose the Odyssey, which I know is, of course, classic and archaic, but from, you know, Greece, probably what, um, would you say 800 years uh, prior? Well, about yeah, right? about
0: about uh, 700 years before um, before the Ptolemies, for sure. If we're looking, if we're, my books are like 50-ish BC and this is you're right, seven 750 to 725 BC. Um, but again, uh, so the influence of the Iliad and the Odyssey on sort of both Greek and Hellenistic, and when I say Hellenistic, it just means basically like Greek-like, like the Greeks wouldn't consider the Ptolemies to be Greek, but the Ptolemies spoke Greek among themselves in their court and would have thought of themselves as being the heirs of the Greeks. But the... But And actually, that's a really, that's also, uh, okay, I'm going to get briefly into the weeds here. The Hellenic Hellenistic distinction is also perhaps more of a modern distinction, where like when people study Hellenic culture, they're talking about classical Greece, which really is primarily focused in Athens in the fifth century, fifth fourth and fifth century BC. Whereas if they talk about Hellenistic, they're talking about after Alexander the Great of Macedonia conquers most of um, you know, sort of the Near East and the Mediterranean, both in North Africa and Europe. Um so
1: I just I put everyone I lump them with like Pericles and then hope it was like within 50 years of that
0: (laughs) I mean I think what most people do if they even get to the point of Pericles Um, but uh, point being the Iliad and the Odyssey were hugely influential texts they were written about both in sort of like classical Greece and then also they were studied at length by uh, in the library of Alexandria Alexandria was the capital of the Ptolemaic Empire and uh, you can't read anything from histories that were written at the time to um, sort of the classic uh, Greek tragedies to the various um, you know, to the Aeneid, to anything in that period that isn't deeply, deeply influenced by the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it was still the sort of be- like um, backbone of education. Any educated person uh, growing up in either the Hellenistic world or the, Greco- or the Roman world, as it was becoming at the time, um, would have known these stories uh, like backwards, forwards and upside down. Um, And since I'm somebody who's so influenced by stories, when I was writing Cleopatra's Shadows and The Drowning King, I did a deep dive into all the literature that my characters would have been exposed to, um, which meant going back and reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and a bunch of the sort of classic um, Greek tragedies, which they would have considered to be um, the height of literature uh, at the time. Even though it was so much earlier, some of it was so much earlier.
1: I don't put you on the spot, but when around did the Library of Alexandria burn? And was it, was it an accident? Um,
0: that is a great question. It's not actually fully known. Some people believe that the Library of Alexandria was actually burned um, by uh, Ju- like uh, Julius Caesar um, accidentally, probably accidentally, when he was fighting. Uh, was, this is sort of... At, if 48 bc i want to say um when he was fighting against uh on the side of cleopatra against her younger brother ptolemy there was a very brief sort of to call it a war would be an overstatement more like a series of small of skirmishes and battles um over who was going to um have control of uh of alexandria after there was sort of a falling out between um cleopatra and her younger brother ptolemy um yeah but that's also not it's not totally clear if that's when it burned that's when some people say it burned and then some people say it was burned some 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 years later so it's not fully clear when and there was seemed to be some amount of burning at that time um but then in later years it's unclear when they actually lost most of the, um, most of the most of the collection. Um, anyway, sorry. Go on.
1: It's one of the great tragedies of you know of like. Literary and world history. Now I, mean, I don't know much about it, but it seems
0: absolutely. The Library of Alexandria was like capital the library in the ancient world, and the fact that we lost all of the collections that are there. I mean, it's impossible to overstate how much was lost when they law lo- uh, when we when when the library was burned. Um, so yeah, it's and it's also. Strangely, you know, because the library was burned, and then also declined. So it's unclear after the burning because Alexandria's prestige declined, and it lost funding after the Ptolemaic the Ptolemaic Empire Egypt became part of the Roman Empire. um, Whatever was not burned was then subsequently much of it was subsequently lost. But they had the originals of. Almost everything and there just could be so much wealth of knowledge and wealth of knowledge not from such a Roman perspective, which is interesting to me because writing about Cleopatra um, you everything you learn about Cleopatra is from the Roman perspective because we have all this this wealth of information on the Romans of that period. We have all these letters, we have all the, we have so much written down and there's pretty much nothing written down in Cleopatra's hand that was written by Cleopatra or any of her. Um, compatriots in Egypt, so it would be, and then the, Strabo wrote these great geography, the, these great histories that were lost. Anyway, yeah, there would be so much that we could learn, we could know if the Alexandria Library hadn't hadn't been burnt and then lost the whole collections. All
1: right, let's take a step back and say how we both came to this book. You know, in in, in my experience, I was assigned uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey in eighth grade at public school. And looking back, I was like way, way too young. I mean, my son's a seventh grader now. He wouldn't give a shit about this next year. I certainly didn't give a shit about it now was in eighth grade. It's almost like we had like DARE, like drug abuse resistance education when I was in fifth grade and I was too young, right? I, I wasn't thinking about doing drugs in fifth grade. It's kind of the same way. So maybe, you know, I don't want to make this a podcast about, ped, you know, uh, pedagogy, but I think it kind of ruined it for me because it was kind of rammed down my throat in eighth grade. I just memorized it, got a B-plus in the test and move on. But then I picked it. I also want to talk about, I you know, why you want to talk, why you picked the Emily Wilson translation, which is freaking amazing. Um, so how did you come to this book, uh, you know, later on? Was it during uh, novel research and why did you pick this one?
0: Um, great question. So, first of all, I I also read this when I was definitely too young to read it. But I was also like a very obnoxious, precocious child who like wanted to read things that I was not ready to read. So I like would have. Been, I was very into all of this, like reading the Odyssey when I was like. I remember this is super geeky when the Fagel. I hadn't read the Odyssey when the Fagel's translation came out, which is the last like really famous. Sort of huge translation came out in ninety six, um, but I was excited about it, which is I was ten. So, um, so just like to give you some context, I was very interested in Greek and um, Greek mythology, and I like had like. You know, grew up on picture books of like Ulysses, like the Ulysses story and um, Dolaire's book of Greek myths and all that stuff. So I was definitely like a classics geek as a child and also obnoxiously like wanting to be precocious and finding it somehow cool that I wanted to read the Odyssey when I was 10. But that's a story for another day. But I think that the problem with having kids read the Odyssey that young is you miss I think most of what is really beautiful and interesting about the Odyssey, which is the way that some of the things like the way that it deals with the sort of very ambiguous morality that we get in the Odyssey, the ambiguity of um, Odysseus's character, and also the way that it deals with some like very touching domestic scenes, moments of longing for home, of separation, of grief, of nostalgia that I don't think you really understand when you're a kid. And I think that what, People I think there are two reasons why we tend to assign it in eighth grade or middle school. One is the like, this is a foundational work of Western literature, which it obviously is. It had like it's hard to overstate how much influence these stories have had over the years. And the other is like, but it's an adventure story and kids like adventures. But I don't think you really I, I don't think that it, it's hard to get kids engaged with these stories if they're not already familiar with them in the form of the odyssey itself and i think you're missing what's really great about it if you're just in it for like and then he stabs the cyclops in the eye with his you know pointy stick so i'm not necessarily despite myself wanting to read the odyssey when i was that age i don't think it's really the best age to have to read the odyssey for anyone i mean
1: if you want to do it do it but yeah i agree so in Emily Wilson's translation, which you recommended, thank you. She has an eighty-page uh, introduction, which is amazing, and she's a, she's just very clear. She's kind of you know, this is my interpretation. She's like, this is a story uh, that includes all type of you know the human experience, including slavery, colonialism, you know, gender relations. You know, she 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 modernizes the language a bit, and she goes out of her way to use the word slave as often as she can to just kind of hammer home the dare I say the dialectic between those two. Like, what else struck? What else struck you about about her translation?
0: I mean, a lot of those are. I mean, those are some of the main things. Like reading her thoughts on translation was really interesting to me, partially because when I was writing my novels, like I was always thinking about, oh, okay, my characters would be thinking in a different language, in a language that is like completely foreign to both me. Not, I mean, I have a little like a small ability to read a little bit of Greek, but a language that's essentially basically foreign to both me and my readers. How do you translate this into English? Like how does this even make sense in English? Um, and one of the things I really appreciated ab- about the Emily Wilson translation, as you pointed out, is the, cer- the words for slave and the various types of slaves are typically translated in as servant in um, in in most in the Fagel's translation, the Fitzgerald translation, which is another like pretty famous, um, modern translation of, of the, uh, Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and part of that has to do with, there's this, this sort of whitewashing of, uh, the classical world and the morality of the classical world that I think that we really want to engage in. And it's much more palatable, Um, To not think about the slaves that existed both in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you know, in the fifth century, you know, democracy of Athens, quote unquote. Right? Um, I think that we have this this sort of impulse to um, uh, apply moral a, a level of morality and purity to the ancient world that simply did not exist. It was a violent terrible place in a lot of ways um and trying to sort of pretend that these are like you know servants who are coming in and you know happy to be there and totally voluntary uh you know uh position and not um essentially prisoners of war who were kidnapped and sold to various masters in um in you know the various ports in the ancient world is a little disingenuous
1: yeah, I also read that this is the first trans- first published translation by a major uh, publishing house of The Odyssey by a woman that struck me as, as, as crazy that it hadn't happened before. Um and she also she also has really brilliant insights about translating and like kind of the f- the, the word fidelity of the translation even though it's like a male female type of like binary that she's trying to overcome and I think she's she's awesome at it.
0: Yeah, I I was also of course, I mean, so sadly when I was re- the the fi- the translation I read when I was writing my books, my second book, Drown and King, came out in 2017 and the Wilson translation came out in 2018. So this was not the translation I was reading. Um, I read reread both the Fitzgerald and the Fagels translation. Um, but uh, so this is not the book that I was reading when I was thinking about my characters for those bu- for uh, my novels. But um, I just yeah, it's insane that there's never been a, a female, a woman published Trans, a female uh, uh, translation published by a woman before and I think that there is definitely a much um and just the way that she thinks about translating and I think this also reflects sort of a more contemporary um view of translation as no longer trying to replicate the original in a new language and accepting that that is inherently false and and somewhat um, disingenuous right if you read the pope like the alexander pope translation um, which is the first like really famous translation in english it's obviously a product of pope's time just as fitzgerald is a project of his time and fagel's is a project of a product of his time and i think the acknowledging the acknowledgement of that um and of the way that she sort of is interested in the, in the colonial aspects and interested in the gender relation aspects and interested in revealing the sort of darkness um, and also making it accessible to modern readers. Um, I think I really appreciate that, how upfront she is about that um, in a way that, you know, I was looking back at the Fagel's translation today and the introduction is by, he doesn't write his, Bernard Knox, who's a classicist, writes a, a very interesting introduction, but Fagels doesn't um, doesn't write an introduction. Doesn't have a translator's note, at least not in the paperback edition. I apologize if I apologize to Robert Fagels if he has a if the original hardcover edition does have a note by him, but I don't believe it does. So,
1: so let's hop into the story. You want to hop into the book. Yes. So I didn't have a chance to reread the Iliad from eighth grade. Okay. Um, the Iliad features right the the Trojan War, with mm-hmm. and this is kind of and the Odyssey is kind of like. The, the aftermath, but real quick, do we do we even know if the Trojan has written any more? The Trojan War really happened, is that a thing?
0: Great, I, I mean, who we don't know. Um, there may have been some kind of there was probably some kind of war in a place that maybe approximates where we think that Troy was, um, but whether or not the Trojan War happened in uh you know, any way um, that actually um, reflects the stories here? Probably not, right? Um, I mean, there might have been, maybe it's based on something, but if it is based on something, I think it's thought to be about 300 years before um, Homer was writing uh, in the sort of date. It's been quote unquote dated to the 1100s BCE and um, Homer him. But uh, I think what is most interesting about thinking about this question is that ancient readers, hundred percent believes that this was like an actual event and would have read Homer as something Not that it was pure fact, but that it was generally um, roughly what happened. And if you read sort of various histories, and if you sort of think about the history of like, if you think about historiography, um, you know, the way that if you read Herodotus or Thucydides or later Roman historians... um, Not that it reads exactly like the Iliad and the Odyssey. It does not. But there's still, like, you have people making these really long speeches um, that definitely are not verbatim because nobody who was there, maybe Thucydides did try to speak to people who were actually at the events when possible. But the idea of what sort of a history even looks like is so different than what we would think of now, right? Now you would not, if you're writing a history, you would not just, like, make up a speech that you think... Yeah, this is kind of probably what they said. Um, that's not how we think of history, but this would be something that when people were reading it, they absolutely would have believed that the Trojan War happens. Um, yeah, so it's it's, it's pretty cool. So the but, war is uh,
1: over, and Odysseus is kind of like making his way back home. Want to mm-hmm. pick up there, from there? It's sort of yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So basically, sorry, I kind of lost the train. So. Yeah, so the Iliad is the war, the end of the war, really, um, but it doesn't actually have the Trojan Horse story in in it. So that's kind of interesting. And then the Odyssey is um, picks up almost at the end of Ili- uh, sort of the begins after almost the in- most of what we think of as happening in the Odyssey has already happened. It opens with um, Odysseus being trapped uh, after having spent seven years um trapped with calypso so he's been trying to get home has been sort of tossed and turned around and now is uh being trapped on this island with this very attractive goddess who's offering him immortality um and he's bitching about it kind of non-stop so it's an interesting an interesting opening <laughs> well it really opens with telemachus but that's where odysseus stands in in the opening of the odyssey
1: and then, like, what's the? F- and then he comes home to like some major family drama, right? Oh
0: my God, the most fa- well, I mean, we say major family drama, but Agamemnon comes home and gets killed by his wife, who has taken on a new husband. So I guess you know, in the relative scheme of things, just having your house full of suitors who are eating you out of house and home, and uh, trying to kill your son, is like kind of low-level family drama, um, relative to uh, to some of the other um, veterans of the war. But, uh but yes, he comes home and um, his house has been filled with suitors who want to marry his wife, who has been putting them off through a variety of schemes and his young son, who's not actually that young, he's 20 but really does not have a strong handle on the situation um, doesn't know what to do and uh, can't um, doesn't seem to be able to become the man of the house and kick them out. And uh they're basically just eating Odysseus out of house and home and then also planning to kill his son. So that's that's what he's coming home to.
1: I don't know how to ask this, but is, was it common I don't know at the, right, at the time to like have the gods interact with the humans in the story is that new like it just struck me as strange
0: um that's a great question so like it's so kind of like if you think about um I mean there's not a lot of other, like certainly there's no other Greek literature that really survives from the time, but certainly in subsequent tales, subsequent stories um, in, in classical Greek works, they absolutely have the gods um, come and interact with human beings. And if you think about the Bible, which is, you know, the Old Testament is uh, written, I'm always going to forget, it's uh, written at various various times, but s- between twelve hundred and like two hundred BC, um, and God there, especially in the early parts of the Old Testament, you have God and you have angels coming down and like chit chatting with the um, the main characters, kind of on the regular, right? So this idea of of the gods being um, very involved in human lives, especially human lives of a long time ago. And I think it's important to remember that for certainly for even when the Iliad and the Odyssey were first written down, um, it was still about an earlier time um, and an earlier time when things were kind of different. Do you know what I mean? So the like people didn't necessarily think and certainly not by the time we're talking about classical Greece that the gods were gonna come intervene in their own daily lives but um, but the idea of there was this pastime this golden age when the gods and the goddesses did intervene in people's daily lives um, is is a sort of common thread in a lot of ancient um, literature and a lot of sort of beliefs, right? And again, if we, if you do read the Bible and think about it from like, uh, you know, a a critical perspective and thinking about people today who believe in the Bible, don't believe that God is necessarily going to, or that, you know, an angel is going to necessarily walk through their door, but this feeling that things were different in the past and perhaps the people were closer to the gods in the past is a pretty common, um, common way of thinking and that we I
1: didn't know that, yeah, that's that's a good point. Someone's like, didn't like Shakespeare, I could be totally wrong, it's a really bad analogy, but didn't Shakespeare, people, when they read Shakespeare think that's how people spoke and wrote when Shakespeare was writing and speaking, but it's not true. Didn't he kind of like reach back a hundred years or even kind of like embellish the, the language to present a type of writing and a type of sound that was not even the case during his time. I think that's true, I don't
0: know. I think that's true as well. And that's also, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey were again, also like very much, which I think is what you're segueing into, this like heightened language and this language that recalls sort of a greatness and a grandeur that's been lost. And one of the things that I actually really find fascinating that appears a little bit more in the Iliad is even in the Iliad, The heroes there that we think like Agamemnon and Achilles and all these sort of like, you know, um, like sort of badass warriors, they still talk about the past like it was a greater time. Right. Like the real great time was the time of Hercules. So even in this like sort of ur text of like the oldest, you know. Sort of granddaddy of Western literature. You still have this longing for a time that was better than the idealized time that was earlier than the time it was actually written, which I find sort of fascinating. What that says about humans and nostalgia and this belief in some like earlier golden age, no matter how golden the age we're in might be.
1: I was going to make a "Make America Great Make America Great Again" joke, but I, I cannot. It's not funny. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: mean, uh, yeah yeah
1: (laughs) what are your what are your thoughts on the story structure you know after he returns to this type of like domestic drama
0: so one of the things that i love i mean that i find really interesting as a writer about reading the odyssey especially in comparison if we're talking about the odyssey versus the iliad the iliad sort of starts at the beginning it's like let me tell you about achilles rage and then we get the whole story about how like which is really a lot of it is about like a slave girl having to be returned and then a Mag- Agamemnon taking Achilles slave girl. And like, that's kind of the crux of like the interpersonal drama there, which is a story for another day. But basically from that moment, it proceeds pretty um, linearly, right? So the way that we normally would think about story and story structure, whereas the Odyssey, um, I mean, first of all, it begins with the four, the first four books of the Odyssey are all about Telemachus going on his own little journey to find out Telemachus being Odysseus's son going on his own little journey to discover what happened to his dad um, and so that sort of sets up and the re and the sort of like narrative reason for that is to set up um, Josh what you were talking about earlier which is the like shit domestic scene that um, Odysseus is coming back to where all of these suitors are eating him out of house and home and disrespecting his home and sleeping with his slave girls God forbid and all of these things I mean. <laughs> Um so uh so starting there which is also a very sort of like it's not a typical epic story at all there's no fighting there's no I mean there's no real fighting in the in the first book four books um using that as the backdrop is really interesting it sort of sets this domestic tone and also sets up the drama for the end of the book where Odysseus does return in disguise um, and tests a bunch of people for whether or not they recognize him and whether they're going to be on his side and then goes in and like brutally murders everyone. Um, But what is also interesting to me in the structural structurally is that so much of the really famous stories that we um, that we know from the Iliad, I mean, not from the Iliad, from the Odyssey uh, are told to us uh, by Odysseus himself as he's like hanging out with the Phaeacians who are one of the, the the place that he ends up after, uh, after he's on Calypso's island so we get all of this like first person accounting um, of, of the various dangers that he's gone through which is particularly interesting from the perspective of Odysseus as a character because Odysseus is defined by his ability to lie Right? So um, we're getting all of these very sort of crazy stories from Odysseus from his perspective and presumably with his sort of slant to them. Um, And those become the like many of the stories that we remember. And I think it's just really interesting to have so much of it told from the perspective of what can only be really thought of as a somewhat unreliable narrator um given the fact that like every time he opens his mouth he's like they're like Odysseus lord of lies um <laughs> says xyz um so that is I think one of the things that from a storytelling perspective is really fascinating about the Odyssey
1: so is Odysseus in your mind a hero or an antihero, or is kind of this like the tension the genius of the story
0: I mean I think I think that the tension is the genius of the story there are moments in which I think he is very very sympathetic I think the moments when I mean he goes down to the world of the dead and when he actually like sort of sees his mother who was alive when he left Troy And has this and tries to hold her ghost and cannot hold her. That is like a very human, very real moment. I think the fact that his love for Penelope, despite his dalliances with various goddesses that don't sound honestly that terrible, um, despite his complaining about suffering all the time, I'm like, yeah, you spent seven years on an island being sort of fed by the immortals. That's not. It doesn't sound so bad. Um, But uh, those his. Love of his home and his love of his home, despite its imperfections, and despite the fact that Penelope is not an immortal goddess who is offering him immortality, which is what Calypso offers him at the beginning, um, and despite the fact that Ithaca honestly doesn't sound like the greatest place, it's sort of like constantly being described as like rocky and rugged and like full of goats, but you can't even really have good horses there because they can't run on the land. Um, I think those sort of feelings are really strong and compelling. And I think the fact that he is like a man who lives by his wits is exciting and interesting, especially in comparison with Achilles just being an amazing fighter in the Iliad. Um, I think, especially for, you know, geeky intellectuals like myself, I'm very compelled by this, you know, someone who uh, uses his words to manipulate and, and um, get his way. On the other hand, um, he is brutal and selfish and um um, a murderer of a bunch of people who including the slave girls who probably didn't have much choice about sleeping with the suitors when he comes back those are kind of big strikes against him um i think it and i think there's a i really like one of the things i really like about the wilson translation is the fact that she her very first line describes odysseus as a Complicated man. And um, I think that's a really good way of describing him. It's a translation of, you know, of the Greek, which literally means it's one word, but it means it's often translated as like a man of twists and turns. I think a complicated man really captures who Odysseus is. There are ways in which he is really sympathetic and you want him to get home and find Penelope. Um, but on the other hand, he's also responsible for the death of most of his crew. Um, you know, he tells the Cyclops, after tricking the Cyclops into thinking his name is, quote, no man, when they're leaving, he's like, just kidding! It's me! Odysseus! Mic drop! Which is essentially what gets, I, which which then causes Poseidon, who's the cyclops's dad, to, like, throw them a whole other level of trouble, and all of his crewmen die. He is the only one who survives, and that's not a very sort of heroic notion, right? If you're the sole survivor and you're supposed to be the leader of men, um, you know, I mean, maybe maybe our president would think of that as as being heroic, but I don't think most other people would.
1: But I mean, as readers and like as, as, as you know, uh, consumers of culture, we want that. We don't want like, uh, you know, Superman being all good all the time, right? Like the- No. The more, like Don Draper, right? I don't know if you watch Mad Men, but, yes. you know by watching him for 700, whatever hours it is, like we know him quite well, you know, warts and all, and that makes his character, you know, all the more rich.
0: Absolutely. I think what makes this, this story stay with us is the fact that Odysseus makes all of these mistakes, the fact that he's very smart, but also makes some really dumb decisions. The fact that he is not, by any stretch of the imagination, perfect. Um, I think that's what makes him a really compelling character to, uh, to, to follow through these stories.
1: Um, what are your thoughts on the depiction of women in the story and how was that kind of like pulled out or 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 altered uh, by Emily Wilson or how was it shown in a different light? Like, how...
0: um, I think that one of the things that Emily Wilson does really interestingly is really um, she doesn't I mean, she talks about this in the introduction as well is sort of like how enigmatic Penelope is and how her motivations are are very unclear um at at, in various moments like it's not clear when exactly um she recognizes Odysseus uh because Odysseus of course returns and um and hides hides his identity uh on the advice of Athena and also of um Agamemnon who was murdered by his wife upon returning and so he's disguised his identity and he tells his son who he is and he tells the old slave woman who raised him, well, she realizes who he is, but he keeps his identity hidden from Penelope. And there are all these moments of, as a reader, you wonder, does Penelope recognize Odysseus here? Does she recognize him earlier than she lets on? Um, Because for instance, why at this moment does she, because when Odysseus comes home, he comes home in disguise as a beggar. Um, And he comes back to this, he comes to the, you know, the house of Penelope filled with the suitors and asks for food, which they're supposed to give him because of, you know, norms of hospitality. Um, And at this moment, it's also the moment when Penelope decides, okay, I'm going to, the the jig is up. I'm going to pick a suitor to marry and I'm going to put them through this test that only my husband could accomplish, where I'm going to have them draw his longbow and shoot an arrow through these 12 axes. Um, and why she decides to do it there, what what exa- what puts that idea in her mind is unclear and why it's exact, I mean, obviously from a story perspective, <laughs> it makes sense. But from a character perspective, why does she do it? Is there some part of her that recognizes Odysseus? And there are a few lines that also suggest that Perhaps she does recognize him earlier than she actually lets on. Um, and I think Wilson really uh, doesn't tilt her hand either way. I think she's very careful to leave that a bit mysterious. Um, and one of the other interesting things about the Odyssey is is at some earlier point, um, people used to... I mean, the Odyssey was sort of the, like, redheaded stepchild of the Iliad in a lot of ways, especially in the classical world, because it wasn't about war. It was about more domestic issues, which is, of course, not as important as war. Um, And uh, and there were, you know, it was called the sort of the poem of Homer's old age. Like, he was kind of off his game and he wrote this other poem that's not as important because it's not about war. Um, And... There was also a theory later, I think, in the 19th century that it was actually written by a woman because there was so much interest in all these womenly things and, like, domestic issues. And there were also so many many more prominent female characters. While there are a few female characters in the Iliad, they speak – it's rare that they have conversations um, that are longer than a few lines. We don't hear very much from them. Um, So here, though, I think some of the fun – like, the most fun conversations – that Odysseus has are with Calypso and Cersei and Penelope, Calypso and Cersei, both being various divine figures, as I've alluded to before, that Odysseus sort of has affairs with for long stretches while he's wandering for 10 years, um, wandering for 10 years, but actually stuck for seven of those years on an island with Calypso. Um, but, uh, Penelope. And then when he gets home to Penelope, they have this sort of back and forth after he reveals himself where, Penelope sort of tests him and it's to to make sure that he's really Odysseus and really her husband. Um, and she gets the better of him. And it's kind of this very interesting, charming moment because throughout the poem, it's all about Odysseus sort of manipulating people into doing what he wants and him using and spinning these lies and spinning these sort of deceptions. And then to have that little reversal, um, It gives a lot of power, not that Penelope has a ton of power throughout this, but it gives her a lot of power. And to make her sort of an interesting, nuanced character, more nuanced character, even if her sort of goal, even if there's a mystery around her, is is certainly a lot more interesting than Helen, who, at least in the Iliad, exists primarily as the cause of war. She's, you know, the face that launches a thousand ships, and now they're all going to war because Paris abducted slash seduced her away from Menelaus. So it's certainly a much more interesting, or a lot more interesting female characters um, and ones that sort of awaken your imagination a lot more. That said, it's definitely not a you know, feminist text by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think Wilson tries to make it one. Um, The expectations of Penelope versus the expectations of Odysseus are very different. Penelope is expected to be completely loyal to her husband, even though she doesn't know if he's alive or dead, even though he's been gone for 20 years. Um, And despite that, her sort of like the somewhat bratty Telemachus still like makes these like very snide remarks um, when he first meets Athena, who's like, he's like in the guise of somebody else, as the gods are always in the guise of somebody else. Um, and she says he's Odysseus' son. And he's like, well, that's what my mom says, but, you know, implication, who knows? Which, again, on the one hand is like, oh, uh, my dad is so great. Who can say if I'm really the son of such a great man? But it's also like throwing my mom under the bus as being an adulteress, like, which is just kind of a weird thing. Um, whereas Odysseus, who spends As I've sort of said probably too many times, um, much of the 10 years sort of quote unquote entrapped by these various goddesses um, who he's sleeping with, um, there's no expectation. And obviously he also had, when they were in Troy, slave girls that he was also sleeping with. So there's no expectation of that kind of fidelity from Odysseus. The way that there is the way that one of the defining characteristics of Penelope is both that she's intelligent, but also that she has this um, this un, uh, unwavering loyalty to Odysseus.
1: Right, Odysseus kind of like it's like a binary Penelope. Are you, are you in or not? Are you with me or are you with the suitors? There's like no finesse in what he wants to know from her, really. Even
0: right, exactly. It's all and at that and what he almost wants to know from everybody when he arrives is like, are you with me or are you with the suitors? Um, like without taking into account the ways that being absent for 20 years as the king of an island might actually have an impact on the people living on that island who might have to make some like difficult choices because you're not here to rule and then what right so yeah
1: all right. We're, we can talk about this for hours, but let's get down to it at the end. Ready? Unless you want to add anything else, because I'm ready to talk about it. Should people read this before they die? Are you ready? Okay.
0: I, I, am, I am ready. I'm ready to talk about whether people should read All this before right, they
1: I'll die. I'll go for it. Okay. I, I said no before I read this because I had such a bad experience in eighth grade, but I had a lot of bad experiences in eighth grade. So got to be open minded, growth mindset there. Um, I loved it this time around. And the reason is that it was so human. you know even though this book was written, what, 2,500 years ago or, or, or more, right? 3,000 years ago, who knows? Um, it, it's very, you know, the, the things that happen are extremely human. And the way that Wilson breaks it down in the intro is amazing. So, like, in eighth grade, this was kind of like a, what's that right word? Like a, a bunch of stories, like a serial, right? He goes from Scylla and Charybdis, Scylla and Charybdis, to the next challenge. But, you know, that's colonialism, right? Are, are, he shows up, are you with me? Or are you against me, right? There's domesticity. There domesticity. There's, I mean, domestic challenges, there's murder, there's uh, family drama, and just kind of like, you can kind of see the humans uh, uh, interacting at such an early stage. And that's what's kind of a timeless and universal. And that's what we read for. So I would definitely recommend reading this book before you die, especially since clearly like the underpinnings of most of Western learning. And also, but this translation itself really, really frames it quite nicely and easily for the, the lay reader like, like me.
0: Yeah, I obviously think you should read it before you die. And I would definitely recommend reading Wilson's translation and her introduction for that reason. Um, I think it it captures a lot of, of, of human experience. And I know we were going to talk more about colonialism, which I feel like we didn't, or maybe we did, and it was so long ago, and I don't remember because I have a newborn. Um, but also sort of specifically the moments where Odysseus arrives at the Cyclops cave and he arrives on this island and he's talking about, first of all, how they're basically dismisses the Cyclops as being savages with no councils, no laws, no whatever, and no sort of respect for their neighbors. And play, then-
1: play playbook, the colonialism playbook.
0: Yeah, exactly. The colonialism playbook. And then he's like, and also they have this nearby island that looks rad and they haven't even colonized at WTF guys. So there's definitely this, like what we think of with colonialism as being this sort of mostly modern world idea um i don't know if it's i guess it's depressing to think that it's also foundational to like one of the foundational texts of uh, of western literature so i guess that that makes some sense um but aside from the colonialism there are also some just very human moments and human moments both on sort of like grand and very small scales in terms of um you know human feelings and grief and loss and hunger for home. And there's also a lot of, uh, you know, exciting um, slaying of, of various species, and people get eaten a lot. So can't miss that.
1: Anything else you want to add about, about the Odyssey for the, for the, for the, per, for the person debating that whether or not he or she should pick um, it
0: up? I mean, what I will say, I mean, it's also really and I, I think the Wilson Translation does this well. It's really beautiful poetry, but it's also easy. The reading is not as challenging as you think it's gonna be. Um, it's, not, it's not super dense, nor is the original. It's easy to read and it's fun to read, I think, a lot of it in a way that I don't think most people will remember, partially because of the translation and partially because you're no longer a, an eighth grader being forced to read this book for God knows what reason. So I guess that'll be my last, my last little little plug for it.
1: Emily Hallman, thank you so much for for joining us. She is the author of Cleopatra's Shadows and the Drowning King at work at her third project or novel. Can I say novel?
0: You can say novel. It is a novel. Yes.
1: Great. Uh, You can get uh, the first two books uh, at bookshop.org or your favorite local bookseller. Emily, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Josh. This was really fun.